2: Hej alla kära vinpratarna och lyssnare och välkomna till avsnitt 104. Idag ska ni få träffa Filip Gigall som är vinmakare på vinhuset, eller producenten Gigall. De flesta av er känner säkert igen namnet Gigall. Det här är ju en producent som gör viner från framförallt från Norra Rån. De har ju sitt säte, eller sin hemmaplan i K210, i de nordligaste delarna av Norra Rån. Gör även viner från, från södra rån och sådär. Men det är några rån som är deras stora grej. Och jag träffade honom här för någon vecka sedan. I Grand Hotels äh, vinkällare. Nere i deras lilla provningsrum de har där. Mycket trevligt. Och ja, vi snackade helt enkelt. Vi snackade om rån. Och vi snackade om äh, Gigal. Och vi snackade om Vionier och annat spännande. Och fick även testa en hel del äh, kul från deras portfölj. Så att... Äh, Häng med helt enkelt och hoppas ni får en trevlig stund. Ha en så god. Uh, För Starus welcome på Gigal allt till vinpratarna. Nice, nice to have you here. Nice to meet you. Have you had a, a good stay in, in Stockholm so far? Excellent. So far, so good. Excellent. <laughs> so far, so good. <laughs> And how, what have you been doing here uh, for, for for now? You've been meeting uh, with, with the press and meeting with the importers
3: and sommeliers, or what? Absolutely, I had the chance to. I've had a, a great schedule organized by uh, our importer here in uh, in Sweden, Vinunik. Mm-hmm. And um, yes, I met uh, a lot of sommeliers. Uh, I met. Uh, the press, of course, yeah. and um, very interesting meetings with the final consumers as well. So hmm? we did some uh, what's so-called winemakers dinner oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, to meet uh, the people that drink our wines in the market. And it's also very important to us. Nice, nice. <laughs> uh, start off by telling me a little bit about your
2: way into the business. I mean, uh, we're going to talk about the estate, Gigal uh, as well. But I know... Um, you were quite young when you actually entered the, the, the business and, and took over as a winemaker.
3: You were 22? Is that right? Yes. Um, I was young, yes and no. Uh, I have two <laughs> examples, yeah. uh, my father and my grandfather. Uh, my grandfather started to physically, physically work as a, a vineyard guy, he was 14 years old, oh, so okay. I think he was very young. <laughs> yeah. And uh, my dad took over the winery from my grandfather because of health issues uh, when he was 17. Okay. So uh, arriving at 22, I was not really, really, really <laughs> young <yank. laughs> compared to them. No, absolutely. So yeah. But but but
2: um, was it? Uh, were you always sure that you you were gonna enter the wine business, or did you ever have had any other plans? Maybe some some people, uh, some winemakers uh, that, that are born into wine seem to. Try to do
3: other stuff uh, before, and then they sort of return. But you were determined from start that you actually were going. Surprisingly, I never changed my mind. Uh. So I think uh, if we had met when I was five years old, I wanted to do the same job as my father and my grandfather. Uh. And uh, I've always been uh, more than very much on wines. So uh, it's always been very logical for me to to work in the family business. And uh, it's even worse than this. I have uh, no real other passion. <laughs> Than wine, so uh, I've always orientated all my studies to uh, you know study enology, winemaking, and uh, you know subjects that are directly implicated or involved with with the wine. Yeah. Do do you remember uh, any l- really early wine memories? I mean, like, like how old were you when you, you tasted wine for the first time? I some? do. I do remember uh, the first time I drank a little bit too much. And uh, <laughs> I was definitely uh, too young to drink. But uh, it was like a big party in the cellars. And um, uh, I was finding very strange that people were leaving some wine in the glasses. So uh, I got rid of... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I got. You helped, I got ri- you helped them. Absolutely, I, I got rid of these remainings. I helped them, and uh, yes, this is probably a very old memory. To be honest, um, my parents always told me that uh, I had my first uh, very little sip of wine from at my, during my baptism, but mm-hmm. I don't remember this at all. <laughs> uh, the only thing I can tell you is that uh, I've done the same for my boys, so uh, they got a little sip of wine for their baptism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and that's it. Yes, I think. Um, we have an approach in the, in the family. My parents had an approach and I have an approach where uh, wine is not something that should be forbidden. Mm. In the way that uh, my feeling is that if you forbid uh, something very, very hardly to a kid, uh, the day will have the possibility to drink. It will probably drink too much. Uh, so um, I am the very fortunate dad uh, with my wife of, uh, of twin boys that are six years old. Mm-hmm. And uh, since a very young age, they're always allowed to smell. Of course, they don't drink wines, uh, but they're allowed to smell. And uh, from time to time, they ask, can we, can we try, can we taste? So, uh, you know, they use their little fingers mm-hmm. to, uh, to, to try the wine. And by doing this, you know, first of all, they see that there's, you know, no real uh, uh, interdiction or there's nothing really forbidden about wines. And uh, I'm convinced they will have a very easy approach on, on wines in the future. Whereas, um, you know, I know families where, uh, no, 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 you don't touch, you don't smell, you mm. don't do anything. And uh, unfortunately, when uh, these uh, young adults turn 18 years old, you know, they spend a lot of time in, uh, in the bars drinking beers. And uh, yeah. so it's not my, my, my vision of wine, of course. No. When it's forbidden, it's exciting. <laughs> I agree with you. <laughs> but you, you, you started enology, but you also started business, right? Before yes, uh, the fact is that I've been extremely fortunate to uh, finish my knowledge studies when I was very young. So I was 21 years old and um, my dad very kindly told me, well, 21 years old, you still have a little time if you want to. So uh, I used the fact that um, in France, when you've studied science... And of course, uh, Enology is very much about biochemistry and organic chemistry. Uh, You always have the possibility to jump into, uh, you know, economics and MBA. So uh, I finished my studies with an international MBA Mm -hmm. uh, provided by the OIV, the International Office of the Wine. And it gave me the opportunity to travel in 18 countries producing wine in the world in 10 months of time. Mm, So it's been fascinating to move to the different places and uh, talk about business, talk about marketing, of course, about wines, but not only. I already was a winemaker, so uh, I had the opportunity to meet a lot of uh, great winemakers around the planet and uh, exchange some uh, technical skills with them. Mm. So, you were 22 when you took over the job as a winemaker, uh, what, 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 which one was your first vintage then? Uh. Um, so, my first vintage as an enologist mm-hmm. uh, was 1997. Mm-hmm. So I was born 1975, so mm-hmm. I was really 22. Uh, but I've been very fortunate to um, you know see some changes in the winery before my arrival. Uh, and one of them is um, the reception of the grapes, which is uh, very much computerized. And my dad is from another generation. Uh, he's never touched computers computer his whole life. So um, this uh, new system has been set at the winery in 1993. Mm-hmm. So it means that uh, since 1993, I am the one who's uh, running uh, the computers uh, and uh, the reception of the grapes. So okay. um, I was 18 years old in 1993 and uh, let's say it's my very first uh, touch or approach with wine, mm-hmm. for sure behind my dad's shoulders. So uh, he was taking the decision at the time and uh, I was happy to learn from mm-hmm. him. Mm-hmm. I still learn from him, of course. We is <laughs> still involved? Yes, in very the, much. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my dad is uh, in... An excellent shape mm. is uh, the kind of uh, father who wakes up uh, at 4.30 every morning. He's at 5 o'clock <laughs> in the office. And uh, when I arrive uh, very late, around 6.30 in the morning, he tells me that I'm already one hour and a half late. So, uh, no, he's in <laughs> very good form. He's very punchy. He's very pushy as well. Uh, I think we, we, we make a very good it together. Oh, nice. Yeah. So, uh,
2: maybe we should talk, talk a little about... Uh, the estate itself. It was founded in 1946, right? Can, can you just tell us, <coughs> tell us a little bit uh, about the story from 1946?
3: From it's, it's a great story because, of course, the the estate starts in 1946, but, uh, you know, the history of, uh, of, our, of our winery di- is directly linked to the history of uh, the people, mm. and it starts with my grandfather, Etienne. So uh, I had a, a remarkable grandfather, as I told you, he, he started at a very young age, at 14 years old, in the vineyards. Uh, he was a very hard worker, a physical worker, so, um, you know, by his work, his dedication to what he was doing, he then uh, became the vineyard manager uh, of the company he was working in, and then. Uh, he said it could be interested to know how to make wine, so he started in the cellars as a, a trainee, and then um, you know he became the cellar master, and eventually he ran uh, another winery, also located in northern Rhone, in mm-hmm. our small village of Ampuis, named uh, Vidal uh, Vidalferie is the oldest winery of the entire Rhone Valley, founded in 1781. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, very different from Giga. Yeah. And uh, my grandfather has, uh, has had the, the chance to run this, uh, this winery during uh, about 10 years before World War II. Uh, then he's done like uh, most French, he's, uh, he's been sent to the war. And when mm. he came back from the war in 1946, he made a very incredible and crazy choice. Uh, he went to his boss, uh, Mr. Vidafri, the owner of the winery, and said, um, you know, I'm in a perfect situation. I run a very prestigious winery. I'm in charge of uh, the technical part, and I'm very happy about what I do. But um, I've had a son. So my dad uh, was born in, uh, in 1943, and uh, he said, uh, maybe one day I would like to have the the chance or the opportunity to share my passion with my son. So uh, don't take it too badly, but uh, I would like to start my own business. Mm-hmm. And um, he started Giga the 1st of January 1946 uh, from absolutely nothing. So very often I have people asking me how many actors at the beginning. Well, yeah. it's very simple, zero. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my my yeah. grandfather had nothing. He had a very strong and reliable experience, but, um, you know, there were no, no heritage at the time mm. for sure. So... Um, It started uh, modestly, but it started uh, with something very important. Uh, It started with uh, the roots, uh, the philosophy, the aim of what we do today. So um, there's something important to realize is that at that time, um, profitable businesses in wine were not quality-oriented. They were volume-oriented. So... uh, Everything that was working well was a matter of how much wine do you make. Mm. And my grandfather had a very different vision. He had a very different idea. He was interested in quality. Today, the word quality doesn't mean much. Everybody wants to do quality. Mm. Uh, plus, you have, uh, you know, the, the quality, laws, insurance, etc. So, this is a very different word from, uh, from the time, you know, my grandfather was interested in quality and um, he started... This business saying, I want to produce quality wines, and more important, every appellation I'm going to touch, I want to be a reference, a quality reference in each appellation. And this is how today. Uh, we achieve a, a codron, mm-hmm. uh which is very much recognized on the market as a quality reference yes. so uh, we we kept the same philosophy with my dad. We are very comfortable with this philosophy and um and we have to thank my grandfather for this for mm-hmm. sure. he started off mm-hmm. but <clears throat> the first uh, the first land that he that he actually actually started to um, to grow, where it started to grow, was that in Cote It was in Cote okay, mm, The okay. first purchase done was uh, was in Cote Um It's difficult to realize it today, but at the time nobody wanted to buy Cote mm-hmm. Um You know the the amount of money you could get from a vineyard in Cote was uh, was miserable compared to uh, uh, the money you could make with uh, with a negotiation business buying wines in bulk and aging the wines, selling them afterwards. So it uh, started in Cote um, very quickly he got, you know, very prestigious vineyards. So mm. when it, one of his first uh, purchases been La Mouline mm-hmm. in cote mm-hmm. So he, he was in love with, the, with this vineyard. When he arrived at 14 years old, he, he saw the vineyard of La mouline and, uh, and he saw a house in the village. And uh, he was 14 years old. He had uh, not a single penny in his pocket, but he said, uh, if I have the chance to succeed... I would like to buy this vineyard and I would like to buy this house. Uh, the house is uh, the place uh, where we have our headquarters, our offices today. Still? Yes. Oh, that's absolutely. amazing. Yeah, and uh, La Mouline is, of course, uh, an important vineyard to us. Yeah, yeah, uh, indeed. And
2: uh, a lot has happened since, since 1946, of course. You, you now you, you're here. Really, a, a big player. Uh, so, do you know? Could you
3: say how many hectares do you do you have today, oh, all in sure. all? Yes, yes. Um, you know, the 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 fact that we take over properties is something that we still do today. Mm-hmm. So, uh, we are in a position where um, we are very much quality in high hand vineyards um, today. Our total surface of vineyards is seventy-five hectares. Seventy-five. Yes, in northern Rome. 75 hectares is not a very impressive figure, like uh, there could be in Bordeaux or in other regions. But um, to be really honest and transparent with you, if I had to choose 75 hectares in northern Rome today, Mm. I would choose the one we have. Mm. That is to say, our idea has never been to... uh, you know, go for two, three, four, five hundred hectares, wherever it is. The idea has always been to select the very best terroirs, mm. go to the very best parcels in each appellation where we work, and um, this is really what we want to achieve with uh, with my father. So mm. uh, when I when I entered the winery in the nineties. Uh, I would say we were probably owning around uh, 20, 25 hectares. So we've done a big step yeah, since yeah. the '90s, and it's a recent step. Um, we are not tied. <laughs> but we have a lot of projects, yeah, sure. I can imagine, uh, but you have you 're not only in contrerety today you, you have no, we have a very um, very comfortable and very interesting property in Condrieux mm-hmm. um, with about ten hectares of condrieux. Um, we have an outstanding property in Saint joseph. Uh, we took over the former jean louis grippa estate mm-hmm. was considered as a, the true quality reference of saint joseph um, we have um, we think it's uh, it's modest, but let's say we have a normal property in Hermitage of uh, four hectares mm-hmm. only, mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we also have vineyards in uh, Croz Hermitage, but we are in the most um, quali- quality-oriented parts, mm-hmm. such as uh, the village of Croz Hermitage, Larnage, uh, interested by Gervon, Mercurol, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, we could have decided to buy 100 or 200 hectares of uh, Land in Croziermitage on the flat part of Le Chassis. Mm. And um, today I could come to you with a property of, of, of two or three hundred hectares, but it's never been the idea. The idea is really to concentrate on the very high profile quality vineyards. Yeah,
2: yeah.
3: But but uh, when you do, like, uh, I know we have, uh, there's a,
2: a Chateauneuf du Pape from, from you as well, Sustainable uh, mm-hmm. uh, So you, is it your
3: land that you own there as so well? We don't know? own any land in Chateauneuf du Pape. Um, not uh, revealing too important secrets, uh, the Châteauneuf-du-Pape uh, that you see uh, in Sweden and that we produce is uh, made with uh, a partnership with over 40 different estates in Château du pape mm-hmm. So that's huge, that's gigantic. And um, the fact is that uh, there are some people that we work with for the past four generations that is to say, there are some estates... Uh, my grandfather was buying their chaleneuve du for Vidal Fleury when he was working for Vidal Ferry. So, uh, you know, it's very long-term relationships. Um, for quality reasons, rather than buying the grapes and bringing the grapes back to the north in cote mm. we prefer by far that uh, the grapes are vinified in the south in Shan du Pap. And uh, the idea is to bring uh, wines back to the north as, m- as soon as possible. Mm. So it means that right now we are selecting the 2016 vintage mm. in order to have uh, the wines home uh, by the end of the year. Mm. So okay. it is uh, we take, uh, let's say, things at a very early stage. We want to control as much as possible um, during the lifetime and the aging of the wines, of course. Mm. Uh, Cotroutier, the name itself, it means sort of the burnt slope, or roasted, like slope. roasted
2: slope slope absolutely yeah. mm-hmm. but, but can you tell us about the, the, the climate how, how, how is it the climate there in, in, in reality
3: well uh, I think if you take uh, literally the two words uh, cotroti, uh, roasted slope you understand very well what happens in our region so first of all uh, it's a very impressive vineyard Uh, We're talking about a vineyard where slopes can easily reach 100%, 120%, so 40 degrees, 50 degrees. It's extremely Mm. steep. Mm. It's extreme conditions. Um, And, of course, um, it's a very interesting climate. So um, we are only 25 minutes south of Lyon. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's a different climate. Uh, We feel very much... uh, Closer to the southern part of France mm. than the northern part of France. And, um, you know, if you look back at uh, the Roman time, because um, w- we are very much interested by the Romans, linked to the fact that Cotrotti is a place where we grow grapes and make wines for the past 2,400 years. Mm. So we have a tremendous history of 24 centuries. And uh, if you look at the Roman time, you realize that uh, the place where we live, Ampuis, Cotrotti today, Um, was linked to the southern Rome. It was linked to Narbonne, Mm -hmm. which is a big city uh, close to the sea in in, in the south, Uh, whereas Lyon, Lugdunum, was considered as uh, the capital of northern France. So, um, you know, there's really uh, an important gap between Lyon and Ampuis, Vienne, where we live. Uh, So I would say in terms of uh, geology... And in terms of climate, we feel closer to the south than to the north. Mm -hmm. Of course, um, we keep specificities that are unique to the northern Mm Rhône. You know, it's not Mm -hmm. the same climate as chardonnay du pap at all. In chardonnay du Pap, there can be influences of uh, the sea, the Mediterranean Sea. In our place, it is more continental climate. And the fact that it's continental, um, it can get get extremely warm during the summer. So this is the roasted part of (laughs) cote But from a vinification point of view, uh, what is the key?
2: I mean, to, to keep the freshness and to keep the, the energy in the wines, uh, the, when it was, I
3: mean, the temperatures are so, are so high. Um, my feeling is that uh, in wine, like uh, in life, everything is a matter of balance. So uh, I very much believe in, uh, in balance in everything I do. I try to teach that to my sons as well. But um, it's very true for the wine. So, um, balance uh, is a matter of observing. And uh, it's very important because uh, Coutreti today is different from Coutreti 20 years ago. Mm. Um, I can ensure you that uh, it's only um, the people dressed with. Uh, Jackets, suits, and ties, uh, working in the offices in Paris, uh, that are wondering if there's a global warming and mm. if there's a climate change. Um, we work in the fields, we work outside, and we know it's real that there's a global warming. So, to answer your question, I would say that uh, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, the key was very much in being patient. Uh, we're in the extreme northern Rhone. Côte is the northern appellation of the entire Rhone, mm. and it was a matter of picking the grapes at full maturity. Mm. That is to say, uh, the later, the better. the better. And uh, it was important not to be too impatient and to take some time to ripe the grapes, to get a full phenolic ripeness, to get the sugars, etc. Uh, with the climate change, it can be very different. So uh, it depends on the vintages. Uh, my comment is completely true for 2016. Mm. 2016 was a late Uh, climate uh, vintage so Mm. we picked the grapes until mid-October very easily and we've been uh, spoiled or uh, very interestingly uh, I would say blessed by the fact that we had an incredible Indian summer Uh so uh, we had extremely warm temperatures until two weeks ago only Okay. So in October, we had temperatures close to 30 degrees Celsius, which is very unique wow. and uh, very exceptional. So uh, we've saved the 2016 vintage thanks to this incredible season. If we talk about the previous vintage, 2015, um, I am convinced that we've made among the very best wines we've ever made at the winery. Okay. Um, I have a limited experience of 23 years. Uh, My dad uh, is uh, vinifying for the past 54 vintages, and my dad says it's the best vintage he's ever seen, and uh, is easily comparing 2015 to uh, 1961, his first vintage, 1945 or 1929 that are true references in the Rhone Valley. So uh, uh, the secret for 2015, I'm very happy to share it with you today. Mm It's the opposite of 2016, the sooner the better. Uh, The climate was uh, extremely mild. Uh, There were extremely warm temperatures in July and August. So uh, when we decided that uh, it would be time in December to pick, it was really time. So we've been able to do very quick harvest and uh, pick very early September to keep the balance, to keep the acidity, uh, to keep, you know, I would say a a good uh, energy Mm -hmm. to the wines. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm convinced we we succeeded. Okay. So it's, yeah. So 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 from one year to another mm -hmm. can be very different. And of course, there's no rule. But um, yes, but
2: observation. harvest, harvest, uh, harvest time is. It's not that you you're on b- very high alt- altitudes or something. It's, it's just it's harvest time is, is, yeah. is important. Yeah, <laughs> um, I would say among among s- s- the regular Swedish wine drinker, I think uh, your uh, Coteaux Rouge mm-hmm. is. Probably the most famous because it's it's always up there. When the 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 wines that most most bang for the buck sort of it's 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 still quite cheap and it's really really good quality. Mm-hmm. What's the what's the secret behind that wine? Well, how can you still keep it at that price level and, and what is the what is the the key to this consistent quality of wine um,
3: As you could imagine, it it's first a lot of work. Uh, But behind the work, there's also uh, ideas, and I'm very happy to share uh, the ideas with you. Um, Both my dad and I, and my grandfather before, always kept in mind that, um, you know, people have a lot of choices. It's especially true in Sweden. You know, you go to uh, uh, a Monopoly shop, Mm. and you see, you know, a diversity of wine, which is truly outstanding. Uh, we think that someone who 's never heard about the Rhone Valley uh, decides to buy something from the Rhone to be honest with you and make you smile a little bit. I would love this person to grab a bottle of Lamouline, La, la Turque or la London as his first experience in the Rhone Valley. Mm but I'm convinced it will never happen. No. <laughs> <laughs> that is to say, the first experience of the rhone Valley uh, is probably through a modest appellation, that is to say Côte-du-Rhône. Mm. And, um, you know, if this person grabs a bottle of uh, Côte-du-Rhône-Gigard, mm. tastes it the same day uh, in his house and say, mm, it's not bad, I think we've, uh, we've lost this person mm. because nowadays there's a lot of not buy, not bads or okay wines mm-hmm. all around the world. But if this person grabs the bottle of Coduron Gigal, opens it and says, wow, this is really something. Mm. This is a wine that has a strong personality. It's balanced, important word to us. Um, the price is okay. It's not the cheapest, but uh, it's not too high as well. And there's so much pleasure in this bottle for the price. I think uh, we have achieved our goal. So mm. um, we are very distinctive with this Côte du Rhone. Technically speaking, uh, it's an unusual Côte du Rhone because it's not Grenache-based. It's Syrah-based. So we have a majority of Syrah in this wine. Uh, it shines distinctively uh, in the shelf uh, You know, with uh, with this I don't like to use the word consumer approach, but uh, the fact that uh, we realize that we're probably one of the only winery in France that has no name for, his, uh, for the Côte d'Irône. You know, mm. all my colleagues have a, a, a nickname or a brand name for the Côte Rhône. We sell Côte Rhône Gigal and we think it's enough. Mm. Uh, you know, people rely on the appellation and on the brand or the family. It's the same for us. Mm and uh, this is very much what we what we what we try to do with with this wine. So uh we have a lot of uh, of course a lot of uh, technical points that uh you know I could underline to for example show a wine with a bit more age. Mm. Um, I've done a store check yesterday. Okay, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. We've been to a shop and I had the opportunity to taste uh, almost all the codrons uh, that are you know, on the shelves uh, in the Monopoly. Mm. Um, everything I've stated is from the 2015 vintage, mm. which is a great vintage. Mm. Uh, the only wine that has a different vintage is the Côte Gigal; Guigal. Mm. It's a 2012. So, um, of course, the balance will be different. Yeah. Uh, our key, uh, or our secret, is that we have the capacity through our sellers, our vision of aging, to keep a good freshness to keep a, a good fruit in the wine. But not only, there's a complexity linked to the age of wine, mm. you know, there's a texture in our wines that I think is very unique. So uh, I'm very happy to sit next to my colleagues, uh, my colleagues' wine on the shelves here in uh, in Sweden. But definitely, uh, you know, the the wine that is inside the bottle is, has got a very different profile. It's a yeah. very different shape. Yeah.
2: Also, you, um, we were talking about vintages um, and, uh, and uh, I've read some, some interviews with you before and, and, and I get the feeling that you, you sort of embrace the, the differences in vintage and try to, to make a new wine each year
3: rather than making the same wine uh, every year. Is that right? Yeah, it's completely true. Uh, first of all, I think that uh, it's a common point that the French have in general. The impact of the vintage in France is very important. Um, I've been fortunate to spend some time in, uh, in Australia, to spend some time in California. Uh, because of the weather, um, they have a capacity, let's say, to make uh, more or less mm. uh, the same wines, or I should say, wines with more or less the same balance every year. Uh, the balance can be extremely different in France because of the vintage. So I think the print of the vintage is, uh, is important, and I also think it's a strength. I would feel extremely bored to make the same wine every year. So I can ensure you that uh, even 10 minutes before the grapes arrive to my winery, I don't have a very precise idea of the way I'm going to vinify the wines. So uh, let's call it the artistic parts of our job. Mm. Um, You know, one vintage from one vintage to another will take extremely different decisions. Um, You mentioned something very important regarding uh, going in the direction of the vintage. And um, this is a true philosophy of our winery. Um, what I'm going to say now is not a, a criticism against oenologists. I am myself an oenologist, mm-hmm. so uh, I'm not going to criticize, but I, I would just like to mention the fact that, in general, enologists or winemakers have a tendency to counterbalance things. And I can give you two logical uh, and classical examples Let's say um, we have a vintage uh, that is showing as a light and delicate vintage. So mm. we see that the extraction of the color is extremely slow in the mast. We see that the tannins are not going out of the berries very easily. So um, the natural tendency of an enologist or winemaker would be to say, okay, I have to do a little bit more pumping over. I have to do a little bit more extraction in order to mm. come back to something normal. Mm. The, other, the other example would be the opposite. Uh, in 2015, as we're talking about an outstanding vintage, um, one hour after the grapes are in the vats, the mast is completely black mm. and you already feel some tannins in the must. So you know that the extraction is going to be very important. It's going to be very fast. So the reaction of an enologist would be to say, "Ooh, I have to be careful. You know, I shouldn't do too much pumping overs. I shouldn't do too much extractions. Otherwise, you know, uh, I'm going to make uh, huge wines." Mm. Um, I very much respect this vision of the winemaking, mm. but I truly think the opposite. Mm. That is to say, my vision is that if a vintage is born as a delicate and elegant vintage we should be very soft and very mellow mm. with the extraction. Mm. Whereas if vintage is born as big, with big color, big tannins, why not using uh, the potential of quality that are in the berries to express this strength, the color, the tannins, etc. Mm. So uh, both, uh, both philosophy are, uh, are possible, mm. but I very much embrace the second one. Yeah. Uh, I'm thinking we should try some wines just in a
2: minute. But you also, uh, just talk a little bit because you, you, you. Um, Syrah is your sort of
3: the main grape for you. Yes, Syrah is uh, the main grape of the reds. Yeah, and uh, we have a, a real passion and dedication for the Viognier as the whites. Yeah, mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about the Viognier. How is how is how is what kind of grape is it to work with? It's a fantastic grape because uh, it's a very difficult grape to grow. Um, it's not easy at all. Um, Let's say 40, 45 years ago, there were somehow nine hectares of Viognier planted on planet Earth. Wow. It was the Condrieu Appellation, mm. and that was it. So Viognier was about to die, and nobody was very much interested in Viognier linked to the fact that it's a grape that had the natural tendency to degenerate. So uh, it was producing one year out of three years, very capricious, very low yields, of course, and, uh, and more important, uh, you know, unreliable. Mm. Um, there's been a lot of work done in the Appalachian in order to sort the best uh, vines, in order to reproduce these vines and be able to select some Viognier uh, vines that would produce every year, uh, that would have a little bit more vigor, but that would keep the quality, of course. And um, we have achieved it in Condrieu through the replantation of our appellation, which is today close to 185 hectares. So uh, you compare 40 years ago, nine hectares, 185 today. Mm. uh, We have succeeded, but not only. That is to say, the Viognier started to travel down the Rhône Valley uh, in the Ardèche district through the Vendepay in the Languedoc. Uh, it moved to uh, California. Yeah, I've tasted some Viogniers in California 30 years ago, uh, as uh, planted by the Rhône Rangers at the time. Uh, it went to uh, Australia, to New Zealand, to South Africa. I taste some Viognier from Greece, from Italy, mm. and, uh, you know, there's a lot of regions around the world that are interested by the Viognier. And, of course, I'm very glad about it, because uh, it's, it's a grape that deserves it. The issue will be that um, the flavors of the Viognier are extremely distinctive. So these beautiful aromas of white peaches, apricots, uh, can easily be found around the world, mm. Um, what would make Viognier in Condrieu very unique is the balance. Mm. That is to say, we are able to keep this richness uh, in the nose and in the mouth, but uh, the wines are not flabby. The wines are not waiting on your taste buds. They have a good minerality. They have a, you know, an extremely uh, shining uh, approach in, in the mouth. Mm. And uh, this is really what, uh, what we want to achieve in Condrieu, keeping the richness but avoiding the heaviness or the flabbiness in the, in the wines. Nice. We do this thanks to the soils mm. and the climate. So let's call it the terroir.
2: Yes, so now um, for the fun stuff, to try some wines as well. We, you, Theory is good, practice <laughs> is better. <laughs> exactly, the combination is best.
3: So now you're pouring... um I'm pouring a white Côte du Rhone, 2015. Yeah. Um, And uh, it's a great opportunity for me to present this wine through a a very interesting and simple sentence. This white Côte du Rhone is a southern Rhone wine made by northern Rhone people. Mm -hmm. And the fact that um, we're involved in the southern part of Côte du Rhone, but we have a northern vision of... Côte Rhône makes that um, we are going to use grapes for the blend that are not traditional grapes mm-hmm. from the southern Rhône. So a white Côte Rhône is theoretically Grenache based, Grenache blanc based, and there can be a touch of Clairette, Beaurelinque, and uh, other southern grapes. The fact that uh, we have a northern vision makes that uh, the majority grape in this wine is the Viognier. Okay. So we're talking about 60-65% Viognier here. All right. And that's, of course, very important in uh, the aromatic it's expression of this wine. Yeah. The, the white peaches you were talking Absolutely. about earlier. White peaches and that flavors really, yeah, are, uh, are very obvious on the wine. Uh, we balance citrus. the Viognier in the south with uh, the Roussan from the southern Rhône as well. Uh, but uh, which is originally from the north. Mm. Uh, we have a touch of Marsan. We like uh, Clairette and Bourboulin in small proportions, about 8 uh, 10% for these two grapes. Mm. And the famous Grenache Blanc mm. that I mentioned is almost forgotten. It's 2 to 3% of the final blend. <laughs> so, uh, once again, it's a Southern Rome wine made by Northern mm. Rome people. Mm. Interesting. So, you see, you find the, the richness um, and the and, and the fatness of the Viognier yeah. in the mouth, but it's extremely well-balanced, you know. The acidity the and also some, some, some spicy, you The know, spices, yeah. the freshness mm. that you have. Very
2: nice. I mean, both refreshing and, and um, I mean, it got
3: a great core to it. Yes, yeah. good energy. Yeah, good energy. Lovely. The next wine um, is also a white wine. And it's uh, the reference of Viognier this time with uh, with Condrieu. Hmm? So we're tasting. Uh, so this Condrieu. is one hundred percent Viognier. Yes, it's one hundred percent Viognier, and more important, it's the birthplace of the Viognier. Hmm? So uh, Condrieux is a place where we grow the Viognier grapes for the past uh, two thousand four hundred years. Hmm. It's really, uh, it's really uh, historically speaking, a reference for uh, for Condrieu. Yeah. This is uh, 2013. Uh, this is 2000 what about vintage? Uh, 2013. 2013 um, is an interesting vintage for uh, its concentration. Mm. The reds are uh, quite tough; they are quite powerful and structured. The wines were very well concentrated. They kept a good uh, acidity. They mm. kept a good balance, and um, I think it's a good match with the richness of the Viognier once again. Yeah. So uh, I don't like to age the Viognier or the Condrieu too much. Um, I I would recommend two to three years mm. maximum. Mm. So uh, let's so say sort of two th- right thousand thirteen is perfect right mm. now. Do so okay. you have, do you ever uh, do you put it in oak in some some time? Yes, what? the Condrieu is vinified for one third in York barrels mm. and two thirds in stainless steel in order to keep the freshness. Yeah, yeah. Um, you get. Th- it's a hint little hint of oak. It's nose, hint yeah, of yeah, oak. Yeah. Yes, it's very well integrated into very, the wine. Yeah. It's more uh, a matter of adding an aromatic complexity mm. than really marking the wines. Real nice, but on the palate
2: I get almost like not tropical, but a little bit of mango and that kind Absolutely. of uh, kind of fruit yes. as well. tropical
3: fruits, a lychee. Mm, yeah, lychee, mm-hmm. indeed. Very nice. If everybody was drinking a bottle of Condrieu every day, trust me, uh, the earth and life on earth would be much better than it is. It <laughs> <laughs> would probably be peace on earth. earth. Yes. <laughs> Do you want to switch
2: to the reds? Let's go for the reds, yeah. Okay. And now we have the. Um, so go for the Cross Hermitage. Is yes, Cross thing, Hermitage yeah? is a good idea. Yeah. This is also a
3: 2013. 2013 vintage. Cross Hermitage. Um, is uh, an important and interesting appellation for us because uh, if you consider uh, the Côte du Rhône has uh, an entry door Mm -hmm. of the southern Rhone wines, Mm -hmm. Croix-Hermitage is definitely the entry door of the northern Rhone wines. Mm -hmm. So you have here uh, an expression of a pure Syrah from the north, 100% Syrah. And um, in order to describe uh, the philosophy we have behind this wine, when we make it we want people to have the impression to crush a Syrah grape in their mouth. Mm-hmm. That is to say, we always have a freshness in crozier Hermitage. We always have a spiciness that is very typical of Northern Rhone Syrahs. Mm-hmm. So these beautiful aromas of uh, white pepper and spices mm-hmm. are extremely typical of Crozier-Mittage. Um, we, we had a good ripeness in 2013. And you probably smell the black currant as yeah, well. indeed. Mm-hmm. The cassis. Mm-hmm. Indeed. In the mouth, you have um, the freshness of the syrah. Great acidity.
2: Really, yes. Tremendous. Good balance. Yeah, mm-hmm. good balance. And, uh, and the the, uh, the peppery notes that you were talking about, I feel them even more on the palate. Uh, a lot of berries. Yeah, in, yeah, on yeah on absolutely. The notes, right? mm-hmm. So, this, this, you would say, this is. Sort of an entry level uh, wine as well. Yes, hmm? yes it's um,
3: it's um, an opportunity to drink uh, a wine from the northern part. Hmm? The northern part being, uh, you know, very tough in terms of viticulture. Hmm. We have steep vineyards, etc. Uh, at a moderate price. Yeah. So, so this is the next step from from the from
2: the Cote Yes, you, we can yeah, say so. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Then we go to, uh, then we go
3: to um, the other side of the Rhône River. Mm-hmm. So, uh, crozes hermitage is on the left bank. Mm-hmm. We switch to the right bank and um, we reach Saint-Joseph, which is, uh, for me, a fantastic appellation. And um, we have here an example of one of the very best Saint-Joseph, if not the best Saint-Joseph in the appellation, called the Vin de l'Hospice. What is the characteristics of Saint Joseph, you would say? Saint Joseph uh, can be, let's say, an appellation difficult to understand because it's extremely long, it's more than 50 kilometers long and there are really two poles in Saint Joseph. Hmm? You have a northern pole, next to Condrieux, uh, around the village of Chavanet, hmm? uh, and you have a southern pole, which is the os- historical pole of Saint Joseph, right in front of the Hermitage hillside. Uh, despite the fact that uh, we are in the north, next to Condrieux, mm. Chavanais, so we live in Ampuis, Um our vineyards and our sourcing is only from the southern part mm. of the Appalachians. So everything we produce in Saint-Joseph is uh, coming from, you know, this, the area of Tournon-sur-Rhône, which is in front of Ten Hermitage. Okay, okay. So this, um, this Saint-Joseph is a single vineyard uh, named the Vigne de l'Hospice. It's the former vineyard of the Hospice. People might be familiar with the Hospice de Beaune. Mm-hmm. Um, in this case, uh, the vines are owned by the town of mm-hmm. Beaune, and they're sold in action. In the case of the Vigne de l'Hospice, it's a monopoly. It's the former vineyard of the Hospice that we are very fortunate to own. So mm. it's an outstanding property of uh, 3.5 hectares only. Yeah. So it's very tiny. But it's producing a, a very, very specific and very interesting Saint-Joseph.
2: Nice. Would you say that Saint-Joseph is, is, is a dif- difficult appellation to work with? Because I, tend, I think that I've tasted some Saint-Joseph and, and some are really, really good
3: and some are some aren't really there, some aren't really... It really is true connected that uh, there's an heterogeneity in the appellation, which, uh, which is important, um, that's a fact. So we have to work hard in order to uh, make sure that everybody makes fine wines to go in the right direction. But also, I think um, Saint-Joseph does not have the chance that Crozet-Hermitage has. No. Because uh, in Crozet-Hermitage, there's a magic word And the magic word is Hermitage. Mm. So when people hear Croz Hermitage, uh, they hear Hermitage as well. So they think of the Rhône Valley, they think of the Syrah. Mm. When people hear Saint-Joseph for the first time, uh, they could locate uh, Saint-Joseph somewhere between uh, Saint-Emilion and Mm. Saint-Véran. That is to say it's a saint, okay, but nobody has a real idea where it's Saint-Joseph. And Saint-Joseph is, uh, you know, let's say among the very best hillsides on the right bank of the Rhône Valley. So... uh, we have a quality potential in this appellation, which is absolutely tremendous. Get this sort of, um, sort of a stone minerality. In, yes, in, in, absolutely. In so we are on a slope of granite. Yeah. A very uh, distinctive species, a very distinctive kind of granite here in this uh, in this sector, mm. unique to the Vindelos piece. So it makes of uh, this wine a, a unique example of uh, the expression of this soil. Mm. Wow. This is a beautiful wine. This is a beautiful yeah. wine. Um, to be honest with you, this uh, Saint-Joseph uh, being uh, considered as a luxury Saint-Joseph, mm. the, this wine tasting blind is very hardly uh, described as a Saint-Joseph. Okay. It's always described as a much uh, better wine, mm. such as a cote or an Hermitage. But uh, in a blind tasting, it's, uh, it's the tricky wine to guess because... Uh, it has, uh, you know, such a balance and such quality in the, in the texture of the tannins that uh, people people very hardly uh, consider it's a it's a
2: Again, this this perfect combination between the spices and and, and the red berry, red and dark berries, and Absolutely. all that, and the finish is
3: very very long finish. Very long finish. Yeah. The technical point I'd like to make here is the fact that. Uh, this wine has spent 30 months in new york barrels okay but that's much but you've not noticed no not at simply all simply because um we have would you know a very that. strong experience and a strong knowledge mm. about barrel aging we've always done long term uh, barrel agings and um i it would is, never say it, that it is long. So, it is so important to us that uh in 2003, we have taken the decision to start our own, own cooprage. So, we're a unique example in the Rhone Valley of a winery owning its cooprage. Okay. So, we do the barrels ourselves. Mm. That's the best way to control everything. Yeah. To control uh, the origin of uh, the oak trees, to control uh, the drying of uh, the staves, mm. to control the toasting, of course, etc. So, it's a very small cooprage located at the Chateau d'Empuy, but mm. um, let's say it's very high quality profile mm. oriented and uh,
2: and 11 uh, as a vintage this was a 2011 mm-hmm. uh, uh, reliable reliable
3: extremely reliable mm. um people have to realize that we're not bordeaux no uh, so i know 2011 in bordeaux is uh, is very average mm. uh, a lot of people you know went for the 2010 the 2010 are Truly amazing and outstanding in the own. but 2011 is a beautiful vintage, mm. extremely classical. Mm. Not like the 10s that were very powerful, very structured. The 11 is, a, is much more uh, balanced and classical, I would say. Nice, nice. And then we're going for... Uh, we're reaching cote Rôtie. Yeah, we're reaching Côte Rôtie. Yes, we are. With um, the first Côte Rôtie tasting being the Côte Rôtie Brunée Blonde. Mm from the fantastic 2012 vintage. You're I s- mentioning now Brune et Blondes.
2: <coughs> uh, could,
3: could you tell the listeners about that? I'm That's mentioning Brune et Blanc because um, if, you know, terroirs can sometimes be a little bit complicated or tough to understand, in Côte-Rôtie, it's rather simple. Um, we have two sectors in the appellation. A first sector called the cote blonde. Where we have uh, soils made of schists, limestone, and silica, and another sector made of, uh, uh, you know, more clay, Mm. iron oxide, manganese in the soils. So uh, let's say the Côte Brune shows wines with more tannins, with more power, more structure. So the wines from the Côte Blonde always appear to be elegant and sexy. Mm. Uh, The wines from the Côte Brune always appear to be more powerful and uh, and masculine. Okay. Well, this is a mix of, of the both. Absolutely. It's named Brunet Blanc because uh, we like to pick uh, from both eel sides. Mm-hmm. Technically speaking, uh, it's a wine where we like to pick everything separate. Mm-hmm. What's uh, very specific to winery is that we vinify everything separately, and we also age everything separately, mm-hmm. and we do the blend just before the bottling. Okay. Okay. So we develop each complexity of each sectors independently, and then we do the final blend. Yeah. I don't
2: know if it's true but it was a story about the Brune and blonde. there was some king or something that, that <laughs> named them after his two daughters yes uh, and I don't know it's, if it's true it's but a, it's a good it's, myth
3: it's a very good myth <laughs> and the legends are very important for people yeah. uh, to remember yeah. and it's true that we have this beautiful legend saying that uh, at the 16th century time so this is the French Renaissance time mm-hmm. um, the owner of the Chateau d'Ampuy, who was the Marquis de Montgiron would have had two daughters mm. one blonde hair girl and when she got married, he decided to give her half of his vino, the Côte Blonde, and one brunette. And when she got married, he decided to give her the other half, the court Brune. So uh, this is the legend in Côte mm. And this is what 99% of our visitors will remember. Yeah, yeah. just a good way
2: to remember it.
3: <laughs> they will forget about the sheath, the limestone, <laughs> the silicon, the iron oxide. But they, re- they will remember the two daughters. Great concentration.
2: I mean, on, on the nose, it's, it's very... Very soft and, and, and sort of mellow, you know, but on the palate it's really just such a great concentration
3: and depth. I'm very happy that you say so, because um, I used to say that when you smell the Côte Rottie Blonde, you probably smell more the blonde than the brune. Yeah. You have the aromatic sense of the Côte Blonde yeah. that are, you know, jumping out of the glass. When you have the wine in mouth... You have this uh, texture and this structure that is probably uh, closer to the Côte Brune. So uh, it's a very interesting mix.
2: Beautiful. When you, you would say that this is a, is this a typical example
3: of a of a of a, of a good Côte tea Absolutely. This a, yeah. This, yeah. Is a, um, this is a, a true reference mm. for the appellation. Yeah. You know, a, a lot of people discover Côte tea through this bottle for the first time, mm. and of course it's a very important bottle to us mm. because mm. Uh, we need uh, through. A single wine to show the potential of an entire appellation. Mm, so mm. Uh, it's it's fascinating to produce this uh, this bottle every year. Um, the next one is also Cotroti. Yes, it's Cot- the Cot- Cot- Cotroti Chateau d'Empuy. Mm. So this time we are talking about um, an estate wine
2: yeah.
3: uh, coming from our very best parcels after touching or surrounding. La Mouline, La Turque, and La London, what people call the, the Lalas. The Lalas. Absolutely. Yes. So uh, these are truly impressive and outstanding vineyards. Um, they have tremendous qualities. We keep the same philosophy where we pick them separately, mm-hmm. we vinify them separately, and we age them separately. We will do the blends before the bottling. Yeah. And we're talking about seven parcels, three in the Côte Blonde next to La Moulin, three in the Côte Brune next to La Turque, and the last one touching La London a little bit northern. Okay, okay. Yeah. Côte Routy, Château d'Ampuy, 2012. 2012, yeah. So many levels
2: on, on the nose, so many layers.
3: There are layers, and there are, of course, uh, different lectures of this wine. Um, If you take it in a very simple way, you have a very aromatic nose, not uh, going a little bit further, and um, in the mouth, you have uh, a silkiness Mm. in the approach and a power uh, expression as well. Yes, it's,
2: it's more, almost like um, uh, leather and, and, and meat and so in, in the bottom. Absolutely. And,
3: and above that, all this silky f- fruits. Yeah, Just so uh, this is, uh, let's say, the simple approach of the wines. If you go more in the details, you realize that uh, in Kotroti we have uh, the capacity or the possibility to have a little bit of Viognier with the Syrah. So this wine is 7% Viognier. Mm-hmm. And the Viognier... It definitely has an impact on uh, the aromatic complexity of the wine mm. but more important i'm convinced that the viognier has a strong impact on the texture of the tannins yeah. and uh, you have a wine here that have a fantastic texture Extremely. Uh, it's silky and powerful mm. at the same time mm. which is very difficult to achieve of course
2: yeah, yeah. lovely and the tannins are really i mean they're powerful but they're so well integrated and so so mature in just round up so
3: the, the, the last but not least last but not least absolutely mm-hmm. will be a, a bottle of the Côte Rôtie La mm-hmm. from the fantastic and already legendary vintage 2010 <laughs> so um, La Moulin is uh, is a unique example on the Côte Blonde mm-hmm. of um, a vineyard that uh, lives through history. Mm. So uh, it's a vineyard that has got a lot of terraces. Um, It's pictured on the label. So on the label you can see the vineyard of La Moulin and you realize there's a lot of terraces and a lot of walls. Believe it or not, all these walls are 2,400 years ago. Wow. So they're dating back the Roman time. Mm. Uh, It's a vineyard that took its shape and uh, where the Romans started to produce wines there a a, a long time ago. And um, you have here a complexity in the diversity of the exposures because of a unique shape of a Roman amphitheater shape Mm. in the vineyards, you have um, the Viognier, 11% Viognier in La Mm. You have the fact that uh, it's also the oldest vineyard in the entire Côte-Rôtie Appellation. Okay. So we're talking about uh, 90 years old of age in average for the vines. We still have vines dating back 1893. Wow. 1893 are the first replantations after the Félico Crisis in cote yeah. so it's fascinating. It's, uh, it's vine on American rootstocks, mm. but it's the very first vine planted. And unfortunately, I kept the worst for the end. Um, <laughs> it's a very tiny vignette. Oh. So uh, La Moulin is precisely one hectare. Uh, one hectare? One hectare. It oh, means okay. that in a normal vintage, uh, we would produce uh, around 5,000 bottles of La Moulin. Oh, and of course, okay, it's very, than. very difficult to get this wine yeah, yeah. because five thousand uh, bottles is a is, nothing, is a ridiculous yeah, number. Yeah, yeah. Right? I'm honored to,
2: to to be able to try it here. But it, it it's really fresh on the nose, but you you start to feel that s- some some maturity in it as well. Yes.
3: Um, 2010 was a vintage that was ripe. But that also kept uh, a lot of freshness mm. and uh, expresses through very serious tannins. Mm.
2: This is kind of wine that makes you smile. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. Just so, <laughs> just got, it gets everything sort of. Fantastic balance and concentration. This is
3: amazing. It's the kind of vintage that makes you smile too. To yeah, be honest, <laughs> because. Um, 2010, um, and I hope you won't be shocked, but what I'm going to tell you is a vintage that is uh, quite easy Mm. to achieve. Uh, I don't know many wines in 2010 that are horrible in the Rhône Valley or that are horrible in France in general. 2010 was a great vintage in Burgundy, it was a great vintage in Bordeaux, it was a very outstanding vintage in the Rhône Valley as well, so... uh, we feel extremely fortunate where we have a vintage like a 2010, where uh, things appear to be simple, and uh, we can make uh, outstanding wines.
2: Mm. This is truly outstanding, uh, and I'm, I'm I'm so grateful that uh, I I, I um, had the opportunity to taste it. And um, this is also, also the perfect time to say a big thank you to Philippe Gigal for for uh, for joining us and uh, having this tasting with me. was per- great.
3: So. Thanks and, and cheers to you. Thank you very much. I was happy to spend some time with you. Yeah, nice. And um, I'm looking forward to have the possibility to be with you back again when you'll taste the wines uh, in the bottle. I will definitely do. And uh, for all your listeners,
2: um, if you ever get the opportunity to take, taste the uh, Milan, you should do it, because it's perfect. <laughs> thank you. Cheers. Uh, thank you. Cheers. Cool. <laughs>